Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're back in our series, His Story, uh, which is Lessons from the Old Testament. And I have entitled our message today, Changed or Not So Much. And I want to read two illustrations. I want you to think about both of these illustrations and honestly answer which one you identify with the most, the hamster or the butterfly. One author writes, while staying with my friends Tim and Jill Jones, I watched their hamster, Hammy, very original, in his little cage. Hammy has a warm nest of cedar shavings to curl up in, a water bottle to drink from, and best of all, a wheel that he can run inside of. He has everything a hamster could want or need. But Hammy refuses to run inside his running wheel. Instead, he's come up with what he thinks is a better idea. Hammy climbs on top of the wheel, turns over on his back on the top of the wheel, and stretches out. Gradually, the wheel starts to turn, and Hammy's entire body rolls with it head first. The wheel picks up speed, spins faster and faster until clunk, Hammy's head smacks on the bottom of the cage. And he gets up and he shakes himself off, apparently hurt from the unexpected sharp blow on his head. But what does Hammy do? He climbs back on top of the wheel, he turns over, he stretches himself out, gets ready to clunk his head again. Why? Why would a hamster who has everything he needs disregard the wheel's proper use and do something that consistently hurts himself? And after that, why would he do it again? And then the author asks the question, the bigger question is, why do we, as humans, who are supposedly smarter than hamsters, do exactly the same thing. Now, I've witnessed something like this. I think the hamster I saw was on his belly while he did this, but over and over, tried to get on top of the wheel. They just don't learn, and repeated bumps on the head are not a deterrent. That's the hamster. Here's the butterfly. Until recently, the only way to study how a caterpillar changes into a butterfly was to cut open a chrysalis, which would kill it, obviously, or to x-ray it, both with fatal results. But a recent issue of National Geographic reported on a new micro-CT scan that shows how metamorphosis takes place. Metamorphosis is a radical change in form and function. Many animals go through this process. Frogs do it, sea urchins do it, wasps do it, beetles do it. But most of us know about metamorphosis from caterpillars that become butterflies. Yet scientists are only beginning to grasp the miracle of what actually goes on inside of a chrysalis. New research shows that the insect's makeover is a mix of destruction of old ways of being and thinking combined with brand new ways of being and thinking. Listen to this. The article notes that in the chrysalis, certain cells die. So what was as a caterpillar, it dies off and body parts atrophy. So parts of the caterpillar atrophy, they become smaller, other parts die. Meanwhile, other cells in place since birth, they've always been there, they've been dormant. Now those rapidly expand and the adult emerges completely remodeled, capable of flight and possessing a completely rewired brain. Now we've all seen this transformation. 
not from the inside, but we see it, a butterfly. Very plain caterpillars are transformed into incredible beauty and the gift of flight. Paul actually uses this word, metamorphosis, in Romans chapter 12 when he says we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So the question, which are you most like? The butterfly, completely transformed, or the hamster? Are you more like the hamster that doesn't progress? He repeats the same failures. He keeps hitting his head over and over and over, even though we are, have a new life in Christ, or are we like the butterfly? The old dies, the new develops. Nobody could ever guess who you were before Jesus because you are totally new. You've been totally transformed. You're just not the same person. See, God wants and expects change in our lives. The word salvation, when we find it in the New Testament in particular, it's a very broad term. I think we tend to use it very narrowly, but it's actually a very broad term. If you were to study all of its uses in the New Testament, you'll find that it it refers to many theological concepts, but primarily three, which I'm going to give you here. One of them is justification. When we talk about when we were saved, we're using the word salvation of justification. Justification is what happens at our point of faith. When we first come to Jesus, we are justified. And that means that God, based on the merits of Jesus, based on what Jesus did on the cross, based on his perfect righteousness, we are declared righteous. We are declared to be in Christ because we're trusting in Christ. The work of the cross, its payment for sins, is put on our legal account in heaven. Our sins are transferred to Jesus on the cross. And so when we think of being saved, we think of justification. It's past tense. We say, I was saved, you know, October 5th, 1985. That's the way we use the word salvation often, of justification. There's another word that's particularly common in the New Testament, and that is sanctification. It means to be made holy. It's the process of becoming righteous. Justification, we're declared righteous. It's a judicial standing. Doesn't mean we've been changed. It just means we're in a good place with God judicially. Sanctification means we're becoming better. We're changing. And the right way to use the word saved there would be, I am being saved day by day, I am being saved. I am being transformed. I am being changed. That's the appropriate use of that word when it comes to sanctification. Justification, I was saved. Sanctification, I'm being saved. The third use is glorification. We don't see this very often in the Bible, but it's talking about when we get to heaven. The end goal is accomplished. We are fully saved. I will be saved. I'll be made like Christ Fully, that's another use of that word, salvation. Again, we use the word mostly in the past tense. Hey, I was saved at such and such a point. But God cares an awful lot about the present process of sanctification. The lives we live are to be a reflection of Jesus. We're now in Christ, and our legal standing of justification is to be reflected in our changing lives in sanctification Hopefully, so that when we get to heaven, there's not as much transformation necessary as we would think. God cares a lot about sanctification. This new way of living is to be attractive to a lost world around us. We also know it's our best life. As sin gets less and less of a grip on us, as we're being made holy, we're becoming what we were intended to be in the first place and what we are created to be. 
But sometimes, change is hard. It's elusive. Habits, habits die hard. Or they don't die at all. And we don't become what we should be for some time. Or sometimes not ever in certain areas. That's what I want to talk about. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 20. It's on page 13 in the Bible near you. Page 13. Genesis chapter 20. Again, much of this story we began with uh, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and then Noah, the story of Noah and the flood. And So we're in the life of Abraham now in our series, and uh, I'll give us a little review in a few moments. But this is a very interesting chapter. Genesis chapter 20, beginning in verse 13. I'll catch us up on the context in a few moments. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and then he sojourned in uh, Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, the idea being he took her into his harem. But God came to Abimelech in a dream uh, of the night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she's married. Now Abimelech had not come near her physically, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him, to Abimelech in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. Then Abimelech called, evidently the women weren't. I don't know why it says that. The men were frightened. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, this is just, what a quote. What have you encountered that you have done this thing? Like whatever happened to you that you would do this? Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife, so it's his half-sister. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are cleared. In other words, you've done nothing wrong here. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maid so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, that's a story. Don't hear that every day. All right, I'm going to look at just three points from this passage. Our lack of change puts at risk God's incredible plan for our future. Our lack of change puts at risk God's incredible plan or plans for our future. 
Abraham is not having one of his best moments in this chapter. I want to give you a little background, a little update to get to kind of where we've been in this story since we haven't been together for a few weeks. So let's review. God had a plan. This is after the flood, after the Tower of Babel, after the nations or peoples of the world have been scattered. God has a plan to elevate a nation he would supernaturally bless. You're going to see that as you get into particularly Deuteronomy, which is basically a treaty between Israel and God. God wants to raise up a nation on the world stage, and if they obey him, he's going to bless them in incredible ways so that all the whole world will see that Israel follows the true God, and they'll come to know the true God uh, through that nation. So that nation that's going to be raised on the world stage, which is what the whole Old Testament is about, starting in Genesis chapter 12, that nation is going to come through Abraham. Nation's going to start with a people, it's going to start with a clan, going to start with a family, going to start with a child. Abraham is going to be the father of Israel. Abraham has followed God's leading, he's followed God's voice, he's followed visions from ancient Ur, which would be modern-day Iraq. So somewhere around modern-day Iraq, Abraham was called, maybe 25 years ago or so at this point, to the promised land, which is going to be eventually the land of Israel. Right now it's not Israel's land. And there Abraham has prospered. Great things have happened to him. But he has no child. So he's wondering how is he going to be a nation since he has no child. And he has agonized over this issue. I have no child, how am I going to become a nation? In fact, he's even tried plan B. Since Sarah hadn't gotten pregnant and, and now she's getting up in years, Abraham has tried plan B and it was actually Sarah's idea. Sarah, when they left Egypt, had a handmaid named Hagar, basically a slave named Hagar. They thought, we'll do this experiment. If you sleep with my servant and you have a child, the child is legally ours. So Sarah's infertility was already evident and had been evident for decades. God had promised a physical heir. So Sarah's idea is the physical heir can't come through me. Doesn't seem like I'm going to have a baby. But you can have Hagar, my servant, sleep with her. It will be legally a fulfillment of God's promise. But it wasn't exactly their faith acting here. So the result, Abraham slept with Hagar, and she got pregnant with a young man named Ishmael. Well, God wasn't real happy with that, and then uh, that created a little problem between Sarah and Hagar, as you can imagine. And God has to say to Abraham now, he says, Abraham, these are my words, not God's, I'm going to idiot-proof this promise for you so that you actually can understand it this time. Your wife, Sarah, who is postmenopausal, is going to have a son, okay? Can I make it any clearer? And so now they know God's promise of a physical heir is going to come through Sarah. And he has been visited by three men, the Bible says. We know them to be angels, likely one of them perhaps being Jesus, pre-incarnate, have recently visited and said within a year, Sarah is going to have a baby. So at this point... A lot of stuff has happened to Abraham since he's come to the promised land and God has just promised them, literally, page or two before in scripture, within one year, Sarah's gonna have a baby. So Abraham and Sarah should be down at Winners or wherever you do it here, picking out baby clothes and bedroom paint, right? 
That's what they should be doing. They just had a visit from God. You're going to have a baby. It's going to happen within a year. But they're not picking out baby clothes. Instead, against a clear promise of God, Abraham risks everything. After decades of following God, he risks everything. In fact, the chapter title, which is not inspired, these are just titles put in by editors of Scripture, or translators to help you know kind of what's coming next. So there's a couple words that aren't inspired at the beginning of every chapter. Uh, Moses didn't put this in here when he put together the life of Abraham. But the chapter title is called Abraham's Treachery. So what happened? Well, just a page or two before this, you have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which, by the way, we have all kinds of physical evidence, geological evidence today. It's, it's in the earth. It's pretty tragic. But right after that, and we're not sure why, uh, there was pretty widespread disaster in that area, and it's possible that that's the reason. It's possible Abraham wanted to get Lot out of there, who he had rescued. We're not sure why, but Abraham moves south. So he goes south into what's called the Negev. He's leaving his friends. He's leaving military allies that he's had before. Remember, Abraham was in a little war not too long ago. So he's leaving friends. He's leaving military allies. And he moves to a region named Gerar. Or Gerar. He is not an established leader there, military or otherwise. And he's feeling a little insecure in his new surroundings. The regional power is the king of Gerar, or Abimelech. Now, Sarah was a beautiful woman. The Bible says that over and over and over. And evidently, even as she aged, she was a beautiful woman. She also, sadly, in that culture, was a potential way to establish a treaty between two powerful men. So when you think of Solomon and his glory, and it talks about all these wives he had, a lot of them were treaty wives. In other words, you know, a king would give a princess to another king, and it was a way of establishing, I'm sorry, ladies, but this was not the year of the woman. It was bad. And so they would give a daughter or a sister to another leader as a way to establish sort of peace uh, between them. So Sarah is being used as a pawn in this situation between these two powerful men because of Abraham's complete lack of faith. So as Abraham enters new territory, what he says is, Sarah is my sister. Now this is half true because they had the same dad but different mothers. And back then, evidently, you could marry a half-sister and you wouldn't have all kinds of genetic problems like you'd have today. It's pretty common back then in history, and it happened. So it's two different mothers, same father. And the reason he did this is because he feared that he'd be killed over Sarah. Remember, Abraham had this deal with her. We just read it. When, when we go to a new area and somebody notices you, just say, hey, he's my brother, and I'll say, you're my sister, because he was afraid, which is like the ultimate compliment, I guess, to your wife, you know, you're so hot that somebody's going to kill me to take you, all right? So that was his plan, to tell everyone this is my sister, it's not my wife, because he's afraid he'll be killed. So the king of Gerar takes him at his word. Okay, it's your sister, I'll take her, and she ends up in his harem. Now, interestingly, the king of Gerar, named Abimelech, is a follower of the true God as well, which is really a twist in this passage that commentators note. This is kind of a big deal. We think of, when you get into the ancient world, we think, well, Abraham's the only person who's following the true God. No, he's not. 
This king and his people are followers of the true God. And we don't have all kinds of information as to how that's taking place and you know, how many churches were there in the land. I don't know. I don't know how many people, how many kings, how many people knew the true God. But this man did, and I'm sure he influenced his tribe in the same way. He's sort of a king of a city-state, this Gerar. He's a follower of Abraham's God. Abraham thinks he's the only clan leader following the true God. Abimelech is innocent here. He's taken Sarah into his harem. God warns him in a dream that if he touches Sarah, he's dead, and a lot of people around her are going to be dead. Now, you say, why would God do this? Now, I just want to give you my opinion. Okay, the Bible doesn't say this. This is Pastor Paul's Suppositions 101, all right? Which some of you think is always what I'm saying. Not true. All right, so here's what I believe is going on here. I don't believe God is threatening Abimelech, I'm going to kill you if you're with Sarah because it would be committing adultery. I believe God is threatening, I will kill you if you touch Sarah because it puts the whole plan of salvation through Israel at risk. Through Sarah comes Isaac, who becomes a nation. So God told him to return Sarah ASAP. Abimelech returned Sarah the next day after this dream. And he then gave Abraham an ethics lesson, which is really quite an embarrassing moment. As he is bringing her back, he called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you've brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. What have you encountered that you have done this thing? We'll get into that later. It's an embarrassing moment for the man, Abraham, who's going to become the nation, Israel, that's going to give the world the Savior, Jesus, that will rescue us all. And it's all at risk right here in this moment. Remember, if Abraham has his way here, God's plan falls apart. Sarah has no Isaac, or she delivers Isaac into another man's clan. There is no Israel. There is no line of blessing from Abraham to Jesus. God, in Genesis chapters 12 through 20, is putting into place the foundation of salvation history that we talk about every week here when we talk about Jesus. That's what God's trying to put in place That's what God is up to. He just told Abraham, within a year, you're going to have this child that's going to become a nation. God's putting the foundation for the rest of the Bible in place. And Abraham has known the true God for decades at this point. But he hasn't been changed much. His petty lying has put everything at risk. At this point, God kind of still has some rough material, some rough, raw material in Abraham, father of faith. And the Bible's very honest about it. Second, often it's the same old habits that we never conquer that jeopardize our best future and God's plans for us. Often it's the same old habits that we never conquer that jeopardize our best future and God's plan for our lives. If this story sounds familiar, it is. 
If you feel like I just preached this sermon and didn't want to work this week on another sermon, you could feel that way. And the reason is because this is a lot like a sermon I preached in Genesis chapter 12. And it's not because I didn't study for this one. It's because Abraham pulled the same stunt in the past. And we have two records of it here. That does not mean, by the way, that there aren't more. The Bible never gives us all the information about these individuals. For sure this happened twice. Who knows how many times this happened. Abraham is just repeating the same bad habit. Between Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, I want you to think about how much he should have progressed in his faith. Between Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, when God first makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to bless the world through him and he's going to become a great nation, between those two chap- that chapter and today, God has promised Abraham, now that he's in the land, he's promised Abraham all the land you can see. I mean, Abraham has been up on the central plateau. He's up on a mountaintop. He can see down towards the Mediterranean. He can see down towards the the Dead Sea. He can see north across the central plateau. He can see south into the Negev. And God has said, everything you see, it's going to be yours. Your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. Another time he said, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the sea. Things are going to be well for you. God had protected him in a regional war. Remember the war of the four kings versus the five kings when Lot and his family were stolen? All the cities of the plain had been ransacked by some other kings that they paid tribute to. Then they stopped paying their taxes. Those kings came and demolished the cities, took all the people running with them. Abraham organized a militia, and he went and he got it all back, and he defeated the regional powers. God protected him in that war. God promised him a physical son that would become a nation, and after they got it wrong with Ishmael and Hagar, God clarified that Sarah would be the mother. And now he's heard voices from God. He's seen visions from God. He's been visited by angels. He's probably had a pre-incarnate experience with Jesus Christ himself. He has been protected and blessed. God has made himself known in ways we can only dream of. God has made his plan known. It couldn't be more specific. You and Sarah, within a year, are going to have a child. Son within a year. That son will be the nation. That nation will give us a savior. In this process, you'll bless the whole world. I mean, God has really spelled it out for Abraham. And instead of trusting God and being changed, now Abraham is a little insecure because he's moved south a few miles. And his old habit of lying puts everything at risk, and he's done it before. Lying here is a form of simply not trusting God. No matter how overwhelming the evidence that God was with him and God would take care of him, over and over and over, he just doesn't believe that he and Sarah are safe in new ground. So here is the father of faith, One of the first people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 is heroes of faith, the father of faith, not quite there yet. Ready to sacrifice the future of salvation history because he's afraid for his physical safety. And Abimelech, the king who also follows the true God, is not impressed. And he literally is saying to him, you know, not literally, okay, my words, like, what's your program, dude? 
What happened to you in the past that we would ever be in a situation where you would tell me your wife is your sister and let her come into my harem? What happened to you in your past? And Abraham is actually quite honest. I just thought there'd be no fear of God in this place. I thought I was the only one. And, and I thought I'd be killed because, well, look at her. She's beautiful. You know, Abraham, in that little war, had over 300 trained men who could go into battle. Okay, he's not alone in a tent. He has a clan of probably a couple thousand people, and he's still running around lying about Sarah being his sister. I feared there was no fear of God here, and I'll be killed over Sarah. And actually, he starts justifying it. And by the way, Abimelech, it's not really a lie. Don't you love that? I mean, it's kind of true. I mean, we have the same dad, but we don't have the same mom. Can you believe he goes there? It doesn't matter that it's his half-sister. She's wearing a wedding band or whatever the culture was. He's still trying to justify his behavior. And he says, we agreed on this a long time ago. When we left Ur and Haran and back when God called us here, that was our deal. You just tell everyone I'm your brother, I'll tell everyone I'm your sister. And we'll meet in the tent at midnight. That's not in the text. Abraham had a built-in plan to lie in this new land. He had no plan to change. He justified it. God had led him there over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles from Ur to Haran and down into the promised land. God had taken care of him. God had appeared to him. Yet he had no confidence that God would protect him. This would be so cool if we could just kind of muse at Abraham's lying plan and say, isn't it so cool that these people are so flawed and we really have our act together and we never do stuff like this, right? Let's just talk about what's broken in Abraham. <sighs> isn't it great that we're not like Abraham? The reality is most of us don't have 20 issues that God needs to change. I don't think I have 20 issues. I got two or three. And they're doozies. We usually have a couple of nagging sins that derail God's plan or God's best for us. And when we get saved, we may change some simple things that are obvious because we're in Christ, we're new creation, we recognize, okay, Christians don't do that, so I'm not going to do that but there might be a couple of things that just stay with us. And then we get comfortable with them. And then we start justifying them. We are Abraham. You are, and I am. Third, God blessed unfaithful, imperfect Abraham. Now, this isn't something that I want you to feel great about, but I kind of want you to feel good about because Abraham was a broken individual. And we're broken individuals. We don't have our act all together. God blessed Abraham. Now, maybe for different reasons than he will bless us. So let me just say what I mean here. God had made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was plan A in salvation history to bring into this world a son who would become a nation who would give us Jesus 
the nation would bless the whole world with the knowledge of God. Jesus would save the whole world with his sacrifice on the cross. Abraham is a pivotal person in salvation history. He was plan A. And by the way, there wasn't a plan B. It's Abraham. And you see in these stories how God is protecting Sarah's virtue and Abraham and Sarah's sexual relationship from her being in a harem. He's protecting this because she's going to have the child that's going to become Israel. Now, Abraham didn't have to be perfect for God to use him, but I think we'd all agree his sin did cause some problems, and he really tried to derail God's plan unintentionally. But God protected and blessed his plan. And interesting in this story, it has to be a little humiliating for poor Abimelech, who's got more virtue than Abraham does. Even though Abraham lied and caused Abimelech great distress, God makes it clear to Abimelech in this story that Abraham's a prophet, and Abraham's prayers are going to be necessary to restore health to Abimelech's household. So Abimelech is the righteous person here. Abram's messing up, but God said, Abraham is a prophet. He's going to have to pray to restore the health to your whole household. Abraham was the plan. Sarah was the plan. Now, you and I are not Abraham and Sarah that are going to you know, have a son that's going to become a nation that's going to give us the Savior. I mean, that's not us. So there's not a real direct application there. But I will say this. We are the church. We are today's plan A. God either uses us or nothing because there is no plan B. And God uses imperfect people. You don't have to get there. You don't have to arrive before God uses us or God wouldn't have much to work with because we're all imperfect people. We're all in process. We're all being sanctified. But God uses us. He always has and he always will. We'd be more usable for God if we get this stuff out of our lives that he's trying to weed out, but God uses us. And that is a good thing. I want to close with a couple of quick applications. First, is the change in my life commensurate with the time I have followed Jesus. You know, when you think of a, a young couple, you know, and a young lady comes to her husband, I'm late, I'm late, says, you're always late, what do you mean? No, she means I'm late. Well, let's get a pregnancy test. They get a pregnancy test, they go down to the drugstore, they check it out, and it, I think now they'll even turn pink or blue for you, right? They do, they do incredible stuff. I see the ads on TV. So she's pregnant. Mom starts managing her diet based on who's eating along with her. You know, she's thinking, well, do I want to have caffeine? Because if I have caffeine, he's going to be doing a jig at one in the morning. You know, and well, I don't want to have alcohol because that can go to the baby. And she, you know, she starts changing her habits because she wants to protect this little life in her. She starts adding prenatal vitamins. And then there's doctor appointments. And when they get to the doctor, they do the ultrasound and and why do, they, why do they do all that? Well, what they're doing is they're checking to make sure that there's normal growth. Because at three months, there should be a normal-sized baby in there. Yes, there's the, you know, they're all along the continuum. Some people have bigger babies than others based on their own genetics and so on. But what you want to know when you leave that appointment is it's normal. It's, it's growing. With, with the time from conception till now, it's growing the normal amount. Because growth is normal. In all of nature, growth is normal. It's expected, and spiritual growth is the same way. When you were saved, you were justified, you were declared righteous. Now we're in the process of sanctification. We're being made holy as God changes us. As the cross of Christ is applied to our lives, we're becoming dead to sin. We're supposed to be growing. 
We don't just get saved and then wait for Jesus to come or wait to die and go to heaven. That would indicate maybe we never were saved in the first place. There is a growth pattern that must be happening in our lives and it authenticates that Jesus is in there. Growth is normal. Is a change in your life commensurate with the time you've known Jesus? Second, am I stuck or stunted by something I seem to just not get past? That happens to all of us. We, we have habits in our lives. Habits become our character, and they have us hooked. When uh, Jay and I and family members on both sides, we were in two different boats there. Jay had his son and his dad, and I brought in my son-in-law and his dad from Texas, and we're out in these two boats, and we were emptying the Pacific Ocean. I fear they might have to shut the fisheries down after that trip. But once in a while, you catch a fish, and you know what? You want to let that fish go, but you know what happens? Even though it's barbless hooks, sometimes the hook just gets too deep. And you know what you say when you're on a boat? I'm going to have to do surgery on this one. That's literally what I say. I've got to do surgery on this one. Because that hook gets so deep, no matter how merciful you're trying to be to that poor fish, you will not be able to get that fish to survive because the hook's just too deep. You know what? Sometimes in our lives, we get hooked deeply by habits, by sin, and it's really hard to change. We need grace and help to be free. Are you stuck? Stuck by something maybe that you've struggled with for a long, long time? Get some help. Talk to somebody about it. Create some accountability. Find out why that's such a nagging problem. And third, what one thing can I do to change a habit that changes my character? Often we think of life like, hey, I'm going to make some major change, make some big new commitment, everything's going to change tomorrow. But you know what really changes us? is little incremental steps. There might be a time where you have to really break with something. There, there are those moments. But listen to this illustration. British cycling was in a desperate situation. Since 1908, British riders had won just a single Olympic gold medal. Their performance was so bad that a top manufacturer in Europe refused to sell bikes to the team because they're afraid it would hurt sales if other professionals saw the Brits using their gear. It was not going good on the island. Then the organization hired David Brailsford. What made Brailsford different was his relentless commitment to searching for a tiny margin of improvement in everything they did. He said, you break down everything that goes into riding a bike, then you improve it by 1% and you'll get a significant increase when you put them all together. Brailsford and his team made small adjustments in hundreds of different areas. They redesigned the bike seats for more comfort. They rubbed alcohol on the tires for a better grip. The coach had the riders switch to lighter and more aerodynamic indoor racing suits. As these 1% improvements accumulated, the results came faster than anyone could have imagined. In five years, the British cycling team dominated cycling events at the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing. They won an astounding 60% of the gold medals available. And four years later, at the London Olympic Games, the team set nine Olympic records and seven world records. Because they decided, we're not going to just get great overnight. We're just going to look at little ways to improve what we do. Small changes lead to big results. Think of one thing today, right now, that you maybe should be doing that you're not doing. 
that would be that 1% or 2% improvement. Just one thing. And start there. Because God expects us, over time, to become like Christ. And sometimes we get pretty used to not changing. God wants change. God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for these illustrations in the Old Testament. When we look at them, our, our first thought might be, how could they behave that way? How could Abraham lack faith in you? And then we look at our own lives and we do the same things, just maybe a different form of it. We just don't trust you like we should. And so we choose a different path often. God, help us to be changed. You expect change. You want change. And your spirit resides within us to apply the work of Christ to our lives so that we have the power to change. Help us to cooperate with your spirit and become the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.